how many of you know your money personality type? You know, uh, I've listened to a few people that talk about money personality types, and they say it's a really good thing for married couples, for each one to know the other's money personality type and their own money personality type, because a lot of times money becomes a big point of conflict in a relationship, in a marriage. And so as, you know, you, you look into this, they have these different descriptions of the different money personality types. And here's just one. <clears throat> you know, these five categories. And they talk about the amasser who always wants a large sum of money at his or her disposal so they can make quick decisions on to invest or to buy something or to put into savings, whatever, but they, they kind of, they, they say it makes them feel powerful when they have all that money on hand. <clears throat> the avoider doesn't want to deal with anything with finances. They don't want to really keep the records or do a budget or uh, collect all the data. You know, they just would rather just stay away from it and <clears throat> gets them into trouble a number of times. The hoarder just saves and saves and saves, you know, for a rainy day, no matter how many days it's been sunny. They just save for that rainy day. The monk kind of is like, you know, money is the root of all evil, and <clears throat> uh, it's better to be humble and not have much and not to try to gain much and that sort of thing. And then the spender just gets a thrill when they spend. So it's just... Uh, something that's just such a positive feeling when they go out and spend some money. And they like to do it for themselves and for others, but it's just a, a thing about spending. But you know, what I found <clears throat> as we have been going through the book of James in the New Testament, that when he talks about people and money, he does it in a totally different way. And as helpful as those money personalities are, and you can find different groups of those, and I think they could be helpful, but as helpful as those are, the advice that James gives in the Bible is really much more foundational. And it really goes right to the heart of the whole matter, the heart of the person. But <clears throat> I have to warn you, as you know from the other passages in James that we've looked at, He's very, very direct. And he just says it, boom. It's kind of like, I don't know if you've ever, when you were a child, a brother or sister was getting spanked and you hid around the corner because you wanted to see it, but you didn't want to get caught and brought in at the same time. But it's kind of like that. We're going to be watching this group of people that he's writing to get spanked. And he's addressing some wrong thinking on money <clears throat> and possessions and investments. And so, you know, it's good for us to see that. And we may not have the same degree of trouble as they did and may not have the same attitude as they did, but it's really good for us to hear it in such strong language and to consider how we view money and how we view wealth and possessions. And so I just want to start with, we only have six verses, 
But chapter 5 of James and verse 1, start with this. He says, Now listen, you rich people. Weep and wail because of the misery that is coming on you. He doesn't start out slow, does he? Weep and wail. He's talking about as if some judgment, some serious judgment is coming upon them. And, you know, we may take that word rich and think, well, not for us, not for me. But, of course, as so many preachers will say, <clears throat> if we compare ourselves to so many other countries and so many other people in other places, we are rich by comparison, aren't we? I mean, we have so much in this nation. So as we look into these <clears throat> verses, let's let them warn us and let's allow them to keep us from slipping into the mindset that he's going to be talking to these people about. <clears throat> so now we'll look at the first three verses. Now listen, you rich people. Weep and wail because of the misery that is coming on you. <clears throat> your wealth has rotted and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. And he doesn't get any softer, does he? <clears throat> you think, don't you wish James would just say what he feels? Now you see, he's talking about coming judgment, right? But the way he expresses it, it is as if it's already taking place. He's showing them what's going to happen in the future if they keep going the way they're going. Your wealth has rotted. Your clothes have been eaten by moths. Your gold and silver have corroded. They've lost their value. He's trying to shake them awake to reality. He's trying to, to get them to see the things that they have, the things that they're going after, for what they truly are in God's eyes. And he's trying to get them to see the things that they are doing in the light of how God views doing those things. And in light of what will surely happen if they keep going down that pathway. Because you see, they're putting all of their focus, all of their hopes and dreams in these very temporary things that won't last. They're heading toward eternity, but just, you know, placing their stakes in temporary. As if these things will bring them true meaning and happiness. And James is saying that these possessions of wealth and earthly pleasure are basically as good as gone. You know, your clothes are moth-eaten. Your precious metals are corroded. To place your hopes and happiness in these things, it will wipe you out. It will leave you dry. It will leave you with nothing. And then you look there <clears throat> in the middle of the, this, these verses. It says, Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. Pretty graphic language. He's saying the corrosion of these precious metals of these treasures that you're saying, they're going to, he's talking about judgment. 
they will testify against you. These corroded treasures will testify to the fact, as you're standing before God and you're given account for what you've done on the earth with the life he's given you, with the, with the things that he's given you, <clears throat> these treasures that you, you stand before God with, corroded, rusty, worthless, they will testify to the fact that you did not do what you're supposed to do that you did not put your dreams and your hopes and your effort into the things that God wanted us to. And this eating flesh like fire, that's referring to judgment because fire is often used for judgment. And even God is pictured as fire, you know, in the Bible at times. What is eternal will be able to endure the judgment of God. And only what is eternal. And he also says, that, that, that last sentence, you have hoarded wealth in the last days. Now he's talking about the rich keeping everything for themselves and not being able to share with those in need. So the rich, you know, we have more and more and more and more things we don't even use, don't even see, stuff away, and there are people that have, don't even have the basics. And so while the rich have these nice homes and extra rooms in, in order to pile their, their wealth and treasures, the poor are suffering from a lack of basic needs. And he's basically condemning them for their selfish, uncaring attitudes. They are hoarding riches that others lack as basic necessities. So really what we have here so far is James coming down hard on these wealthy people for investing so much of their lives in things that will not last with attitudes that are not pleasing to God. And as they are experiencing financial success, they are really just selfishly piling it up for themselves, ignoring the needs of others. And he's telling them that one day <clears throat> they will have to give an account to God with those treasures. And on that day when they look at what they've spent so much time of their time on and concern on in order to enhance their image, in order to give them just even more comfort, in order to make them think good about themselves, he says, you're going to see a pile of moth-eaten clothes and just this... Uh, these treasures, these precious metals that are rotted, that have been tarnished, they're rusted, they're totally worthless, and it's not going to be any good. They're not going to do you any good. It isn't a pretty picture. Now, of course, we, we can find ourselves having to deal with these same matters, can't we? We have to ask ourselves, well, how much is enough? We're thinking of our, our possessions, our money. We talk about helping others. How much is enough for me to have? How are we viewing money or wealth? Can we ever have enough? Are possessions making us feel important? 
the more we have. Do we get fixated on newer, better, more elaborate things? When we walk into someone's home, do we all of a sudden realize certain things that we need? Because we see things we don't have. You know, years ago, many years ago, <clears throat> Laura and I were walking through this mall that was real near, it was in Dallas, and it was real near where we lived. And uh, as we were walking out, there was this one store, and I can't remember now what, what it was, but, you know, they'd have the glass walls, windows. And I was walking, we were walking by, and I saw an item, and I thought, I need one of those. And we were just walking out. And so, you know, a couple of months later, maybe, we're walking through that same place. And we're walking by that, because it was just on the way out, and I saw, walking by the same store, and I see that item, and I think, I thought I needed one of those. And hadn't thought about it since that last time we saw it. And even now, I don't even remember what it was. But I thought I needed it. And I'm sure I had, didn't get it. In our land of abundance and wealth and endless shiny items, I mean, not only do we have everything here, we have it in every color and every size and every package. How many things do we think we need that we really do not need? How much do we get taken in by the overwhelming abundance that we just see daily? <clears throat> I'm not really talking about having something nice or having something that would be helpful. I'm talking about seeing things and then thinking we need them when we really don't. Just because there's so much out there. We are so wealthy in this country. You know, one thing I, I see when, <clears throat> you know, we've lived in Kansas City and Dallas and we've lived in Coldwater, Kansas and here. And here, you know, it's one thing, but then you go in Tulsa or Kansas City and it's just endless, totally endless theaters and restaurants and malls and stores and just everything. It, it just, now it kind of, shocks me almost when we go and visit places because it's just like for as far as you can see anything you'd ever want to buy and so I just think of how much is right before us and how much it can really just take our minds to another place does it turn our heads when we see celebrities constantly in the news because of their enormous wealth and fame. Are we being driven or drawn into this world of amassing treasures that one day will be eaten up by corrosion or by moths? You know, I think we have to work at keeping our feet firmly planted into what is real and what is lasting and what will last through the, the judgment of fire. We don't want to stand before God one day and see our treasures that we've worked so hard for 
become a pile of moth-eaten clothes and a heap of corroded, sorry-looking heaps of junk. James says these rich people <clears throat> hoarded their wealth in the last days. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. They kept it all to themselves when they didn't need it and could have used it to help others who desperately needed it. See, that's when we become self-centered, right? That's when we just kind of blocked everybody else out. And we don't want to end up there, do we? It all depends upon the decisions we make. It all depends upon if we can just stop ourselves from going down that pathway. Because it's so easy just to get dragged along or just to be swept into it. And it depends upon our decisions now to invest in eternal things. To invest in things that will bring us closer to God and bring us more knowledgeable of his ways, more helpful to others. Giving to others instead of hoarding. That could be a first step, couldn't it? Giving to others instead of hoarding. But now we're going to find out a little more about these rich folk. Verse 4. Look, the wages you failed to pay the workers who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. He's saying that their selfish, thoughtless actions are condemning them. The victims are crying out to God for deliverance. It reminds us of the Israelites in Egypt. And God said he's heard their cries, and that's when he's talking to Moses. And they're crying out to God for deliverance because they're being treated so badly, so ruthlessly. And then the Bible presents God as one who really cares for the hurting and the mistreated and the disadvantaged. It also presents him as one who judges the wicked, those who use their power to take advantage of others. And that's what he's talking about here. You're not treating your workers the right way. And we really don't want to be on the wrong side of this scenario, do we? And it seems like there's two ways, maybe three, <clears throat> that we can end up on the wrong side. And one is just to say, hey, I'm tired of being poor. I'm going to intentionally focus on just getting all that I want and have all the possessions I've been wanting and whatever happens. Just a rebellious attitude. The other is to get just kind of unintentionally get caught up in the in the stream, you know, as we just see wealth all around us and it just becomes so normal that other people have never even seen that. And then to lose sight of those who are in need. And then we may end up even doing <clears throat> similar things that the selfish wealthy do without even being fully aware of it. We've just been slowly brought into it. We may have no idea how some people have to live who have no resources. How some may have to worry about their next meal. I'm debating whether to say this or not, but 
there was this thing on TV recently, or oh, I, it was on the internet, and uh, it was the head of our Congress, and she was being interviewed by this person who has a night late night show, and you all will recognize, remember this as I say it, but she was showing him parts of her house, and she gets back to this back room, and she has these $24,000 refrigerators. Well, she has two refrigerators, and they were $24,000, and this is during the pandemic, you know, the coronavirus, everybody's, and people are losing their jobs, and some are not bringing money in anymore, and this guy is, you know, just oogling over what she has, and she opens these refrigerators, and it's these full of ice cream, all different flavors of ice cream. And she's, she's talking about, uh, my favorite is this kind, and when the kids come over, it's this kind, and they're, all, they're $15 a, is that a pint, or whatever, those, those little cartons. And, and right at the time when some people are not bringing in any money, and this is, and she's living in such wealth, and, she, and we're the ones paying her salary. That was just such an extreme picture. Although, I don't want to take advantage of that in, in, in a way, but it's just such an extreme picture of not really relating to the person who needs who hurts. And in verses 5 and 6, he goes on to say, this, his last, these last verses, you have lived on the earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. He's saying that the way that they're living, <clears throat> they're like, you know how you feed cows and and uh, you get him ready for to be butchered at a certain time. Well, he's saying, you guys are doing this to yourselves. You're just eating and getting fatter and fatter, and uh, you're heading to the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the innocent one who was not opposing you. <clears throat> Their selfish actions are fattening them for the slaughter, he says. Their mindless living in their luxury and self-indulgence, moving them closer and closer to judgment. And when he says, you've condemned and murdered the innocent one, um, many Bible scholars believe that he was using very graphic speech to, to depict the wealthy landowners who had friends in high places where they could take over the land of poorer landowners or poorer people who worked the work the fields and gain their property to build up their own. And he says, that's what you're doing. You've taken away this person's uh, ability to, to you know, support himself and his family. It was the high-powered land grabbers that were putting the poor farmers poor, powerless farmers in, into uh, poverty. So James is really bringing the hammer down hard, isn't he? He's talking to people who have the wealth, who exercise the power, 
who are out to conquer, who are willing to swallow up the little guy and so they can get even more powerful, who won't really treat his workers well, and who lives in total luxury and self-indulgence. And he's warning them that one day they're going to have to answer to the judge of heaven. And he's <coughs> warning them that they will be judged by the things that they've put their lives into and devoted their lives in order to get. And you know, many Bible scholars here, you may be wondering, the way he's talking to these people, it doesn't sound like he's talking to Christians. And many Bible scholars believe that these are unsaved people who possibly claim to be part of the church, you know, and maybe do something for the church every once in a while in order to think that they have some connection so that on the day of judgment, somehow they'll pass. And I can see that. I can also see Christians, you know, falling into these kind of behaviors, but these are pretty extreme here. And then James is warning them that they will have to answer to God individually. And they can't just say, well, I belong to this church, or I gave money to their building program. And God will judge their works by the things that they have devoted their lives to. And he will look at their treasures. And he will test their treasures by fire. And he will review how they treated their workers. And he will see who they helped and who they ignored. He will see who they honored and who they stomped on to get their way. And right now, James is saying... Things don't look very good for you guys. He's being very direct, but you know, he's doing them a big favor. He's being harsh, but really it's their only hope. They have to turn. They have to realize that this is serious. And so how about us? Are we too focused on ourselves? I'm just asking this question of me and everybody because we're all in this land of wealth. Are we too concerned about luxury and self-indulgence? I mean, we can get swept away if we're not careful, can't we? Especially, you know, it really is the word and, and fellowship and church and prayer that brings us back to reality, isn't it? That's what we really need to be into, right? <clears throat> I don't really think of our church in these terms, you know, way over the line. But it is good to evaluate ourselves, isn't it? Are we helping others? Are we sharing our wealth? Do we know people who, who could use our help? You know, um, <clears throat> Many of you have heard of the Zoe Institute. They do a lot of work in the community. They do Hands of Grace, and they do other things. There's this town called Day Center for people who are really down and out. And all these places could use money. And the Ministerial Alliance, we give money to the Zoe Institute. And if anybody would like to help in any of these places, the Hands of Grace Warehouse, uh, they really benefit off of people coming in and volunteering. So these are ways that we can do 
you know, help people that need help. And so I would like to uh, draw toward an end this morning with some accounts, with the accounts of some very wealthy people in the past. The first account is of some very powerful wealthy people. And the second account is of some wealthy people who chose not to be powerful. And here's the first account. <clears throat> it describes a meeting in 1923 of a group of business tycoons. Together, these men controlled unthinkable sums of wealth. And for years, the media had trumpeted their success stories. And on this day in 1923 in Chicago, they assembled to enjoy their mutual success. And here's what one <clears throat> historian writer uh, writes about the end of several of these people. Charles Schwab, the president of the largest independent steel company, lived on borrowed money the last five years of his life and died penniless. Richard Whitney, the president of the New York Stock Exchange, served time in Sing Sing prison. Albert Fall, a former member of the president's cabinet, was pardoned from prison so he could die at home. Jesse Livermore, the greatest bear on Wall Street, committed suicide. Leon Frazier, the president of the Bank of International Settlement, committed suicide. Ivan Kruger, head of the world's greatest monopoly, committed suicide. And he says, the success they celebrated proved illusory. And the second count is of a man who was born in Coweta, Oklahoma, studied economics at NSU. In 1951, he started a ministry to reach college students. And by 1996, <clears throat> the campus ministry that he had started and had incorporated over the years had worldwide revenues of $300 million. The ministry was called Campus Crusade for Christ. They changed the name in the last few years to CRU, C-R-U. And it says... This lady was writing about uh, Campus Crusade. It says, although Campus Crusade had worldwide revenues in 96 of 300 million, Bill Bright, at age 75, and his wife, Vonette, at this time, still raised their own monthly support from individual donors like any other Campus Crusade staff person. And it says, that together they earn... $48,000 annually. Um, that's both of their salaries put together. <clears throat> both of their you know, people supporting them. They're both passed away in the last several years. It says, after Bill won the Templeton Award for Progress in Religion in 96, he relinquished the prize money in excess of $1 million for the purpose of developing a ministry of prayer and fasting. He in this article. He recently liquidated $50,000 of his retirement funds to help start a training center in Moscow. All royalties from his books go to Campus Crusade. He does not accept speaking fees, has no savings account, 
though his wife has a small one. <laughs> the luxury condo they live in was donated to Campus Crusade, and they pay $1,000 a month rent. They do not own a car, and they have no property. So two extreme examples of how to look at money, how to view money, how to handle money. One ends in disaster and shame, suicides, bankruptcies, prison time. The other ends as a shining example of trusting God with your finances. Let's pray. Father, we just bow before you and acknowledge that we have to fight this battle because it's just the ocean we swim in here in the United States. And Lord, help us to be cognizant of what is true, what is eternal. Help us to be in your word and in good fellowship and in prayer so that we can keep our minds straight. Help us to help those who are hurting and we're thankful for those who have these ministries to the hurting. And may we be a help. And may we not hoard, but may we give it. May we give. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.